This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 338. And then as a first time flipper, the most important thing I can tell you is don't spend your profits, save your profit. It's really easy to get your first check and just blow it. Save it because then you don't have to bring in those equity partners. It saves you so much money down the road. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with the co-host, the or the David Green. What's up, buddy? Not much, man. Just another beautiful day in California, slaying in homes and building wealth. How's it going over there? <laughs> It's good. I woke up this morning, grabbed my phone, got a text message from uh, a guy named David Green standing in front of a mirror with some giant guns. These guns. I knew this was coming. I mean, these things are like... These are like illegal in 40 states. Like, the, the, yeah, you know, well, you're looking good, I was buddy. A, I was, I'm a police officer, so we can get access to permits that <laughs> other people can't get. Thank goodness. Yeah. So for those who don't know and don't think that I just wake up in the morning and send selfie gym pictures to everyone I know, Brandon and I have recently discussed how he started lifting weights, which I think is awesome because Brandon's lost a ton of weight. He did a triathlon with like eight weeks of preparation. He's kind of insane. It makes no sense when you look at this man, Thanks. the kind of athletic specimen that he really is. So now that he's interested in lifting weights, I'm like, dude, now I'm going to move to Hawaii so that we can work out all the time. This is going to be another element, another dimension to our friendship, which side note, we talk about three-dimensional investing in today's show, which is really cool. So I, now I'm trying to encourage him like, look, like you could have this. If you keep going, <laughs> you too could look like me. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, someday, someday. That is funny. Anyway, no, you've been, you've been, uh, you got some guns. That's good. Today's show, speaking of today's show, we do talk a lot about something that I call 3D real estate investing. It basically is this idea of being able to find deals. Okay, not, not find deals, but make deals. We talk about this all the time about today's market. You don't find deals. You got to make deals. And our guest today is James Daynard. And this guy is probably one of the most, if not the most creative 3D make a deal happen investors we've ever had on the show. Like his, it's just like story after story of where he took deals. In fact, he even says at one point, 60% of his deals, like 60% of his deals come from the MLS. Yet he's able to turn these massive profits. I mean, like one of his stories talks about how he made over a million dollars on a house flip on a deal, like on his own house flip on a deal that like he didn't even like the house was on the market for like a year and he bought it off the MLS after being on the market for a year and he still made a million bucks on it, which is crazy. He's bought like a 60 room house. Wait. And I use house with like the quote, you know, quotes on both sides of my head, a 60 room house. He talks about how he turned that into this cash flow machine, um, how they went from, how he went from like being a, a waiter to flipping over a hundred houses, uh, every year. And how they've built up a portfolio, how he's built his portfolio to over 200 units, now rental units. Uh, really, really good stuff. Again, one of the most creative investors. You guys are going to love this. Even if you're just getting started or if you've got 100 deals you've done, like this guy is somebody to listen to. So uh, you're going to love this show. But before we actually get to the interview with James, let's get to today's quick, quick tip. tip. All right. Today's quick tip. Nice and simple and easy. Our guest today, James, is actually a 
this is not why we chose him for the episode, but he's a premium member on bigger pockets. You know, we have like, we have our free members and we have our pro members. We now have a new membership called premium members. And there's a lot of benefits for, if you are a, uh, a real estate agent, a lender, a uh, hard money lender, a seasoned real estate investor doing a lot of deals, uh, premium might be really, really good for you. Especially again, if you're a vendor of some kind on bigger pockets, uh, and there's a thread in the forums where, uh, one of our awesome colleagues, Vivian, who works at bigger pockets, she's product manager. She breaks down exactly what that is and answers all the questions about it. Uh, and we will link to that in the show notes, biggerpockets.com slash show 338. Check it out there. Again, we'll also, again, link in the show notes, biggerpockets.com slash show 338. But that is our quick, quick tip. tip. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. And now, without further ado, leave us ratings, reviews, and iTunes. We say that every single week, or Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to the show. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, give the thumbs up. Anytime you're watching a YouTube video, uh, Bigger Pockets, give that thumbs up. It tells the Google algorithm that it's a good video and they'll show it to more people. Uh, if you're not following us on YouTube, do that as well. YouTube.com slash Bigger Pockets. And uh, this show is know. going to blow your mind. I want you, this is, is one of the most impressive people we've ever talked yeah. to, in my opinion. Be- be prepared. He is Gordon Ramsay, right? Like he's taking all of the same <laughs> ingredients that any of us have access to, but he's putting them together in ways that you've never thought of before and making gourmet dishes that turn into millions of dollars. If I mean, any excuse you've ever had in real estate is about to get completely blown out of the water when you see yeah. the way that this guy moves pieces around to make deals work. Yeah, he's like Gordon Ramsay, but nicer. Yeah, he's like way, the nice version. Way nicer. That's exactly yeah, he's right. like super cool. 
All right. Well, with that, enough buildup of the show. It's time to get to the show. Let's hear from today's interview with James Daynard. All right, James, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. Good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so let's uh, let's go through your story. I know you do a lot of cool stuff up there in the Seattle area. When we were hanging out at uh, Tarl's uh, event there, uh, you know, I, I just kept hearing really good things about you. So I'm kind of excited to kind of dig into your story. So why don't we go? What did you do before real estate? And then kind of walk us in that journey of going from not, not real estate to your first deal. Uh, so what I did uh, in, uh, prior to real estate is I was actually going to college at University of Washington in the business school. And uh, I was actually uh, serving burgers at Red Robin. Uh, kind of making nice. kids fame for school. And uh, my roommate at the time actually went to work for an investment company going out and knocking on people's foreclosure doors. And so I figured as a senior in college, I needed to learn really good sales experience. And the best way to do that is to go bang on people's doors that don't want to talk to me. And yeah. so for my senior college, I would actually go knock doors three days a week and try to find them an opportunity to buy. And so that they would just give me a stack of leads. I had no... no uh, training on real estate whatsoever. And I would go out and knock on people's foreclosure doors and, or just other kind of sellers and, and chat with them and try to get them to sell. Um, honestly, I was terrible at the job for the first year. I, I made zero dollars. Wow. Like I knocked balling. on probably four. Oh, I was just balling. I was losing my gas money every month. <laughs> like, I go to Red Robin, I work on tips, get my tips, put it in my car, go out and knock on a door and get the door slammed in my face. And then, uh, you know, once I graduated college, I, I was like, you know, I kind of like this. It, real estate really interests me. I was seeing people making a lot of money flipping houses and, and buying and holding properties and buying apartment buildings. And so I gave it like a six-month commitment after college to work. Basically, I was working six days a week knocking doors to try to generate uh, some deals. And all of a sudden, the lights just turned on. You know, I, I spent a ton of time researching the market, what to do, uh, what a HUD was, what a loan was, because I had no... Good training whatsoever. And I just kind of fell in love with it after six months. And it went from making zero money to all of a sudden I was getting some checks for like five, six grand from this company that would pay me to find the deal. And, and for a senior out of college, that was a lot of money. And uh, it just kind of got me hooked. So tell it what is, what does that look like for those people who are listening to this and maybe saying like, I mean, what were you saying to these people? What, you're knocking on their doors, foreclosures. Can you got to walk through like, what was the purpose? What were you, what were you doing? And then what were you saying to get them to sell you their, their house? Uh, so the purpose was I was working for an investment company at a, a Bellevue, Washington, which is a submarket in Seattle. And, um, you know, their purpose was they were just, they had a lot of investors wanting to buy rental property or flip properties and they just needed leads. And so they, they would okay. hire guys like me to go knock on the door. And, you know, it was it, back then it was pretty funny because I, you know, I consider I look pretty young now. I'm 35, but I looked yeah. really young at 22. And so I'd be knocking on these people's doors and they'd be like, what are you selling? And they'd think I'd be selling newspapers or something. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would just knock on the, I even had earrings in too. So I was like, really young. And I'd knock on the door and I, you know, I would just start it off with a conversation of, you know, uh, I hear, I came by to talk to you about your mortgage and I have some people interested in buying your property. It was just kept it very simple. And, um, actually you know, I went out with a couple of the owners of that company and they're pretty high energy, very salesy guys. And that's just not really my thing. I'm kind of more analytics and get to know people <laughs> like, uh, like in restaurants, yeah. you learn how to take care of people and you learn how to serve them. And so I kind of just, you know, I remember for the first nine months, I made no money, couldn't get in the door. And then randomly I talked to my mom and she said, well, Jimmy, just be yourself. And literally, so I would just go out there and just talk to people. Like instead of going out with a mission to go get their house, it was just more to chat with people and just have a friendly conversation. And and then from there, I would 
you know, get in the door and kind of talk to them about numbers on the house. Well, it's amazing how so many people, especially I see this with wholesalers a lot, people who are, you know, jumping into wholesaling or even like flipping their door knocking, whatever. They think that they got to be like the person they heard on the podcast or they got to They got to be somebody else because the the guru they look up to or the, the podcaster they look up to or whatever is a certain way. So they think they got to put on this like act like that person. But I love that you said that. Just be yourself like your mom was 100 percent right. Like because people can see through that fake like that fakeness all day long. Yeah. So if you're having problems, talk to your mom first. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Don't worry about the guru. Talk to your mom. And yeah. And it's really just when you're out wholesaling and you're talking to people. It's just getting to know them, getting to know their situation and their, their, you know, what's their need for selling. And, you know, sometimes sellers don't know what their actual need is. And so, you know, a lot of times when I get to a situation, it might just be that they have two, three kids in a house that's way too small and it's not that nice. And, you know, I kind of went in with an approach to help them get him into a better living situation. And by doing that, that actually, you know, I was focused more on their solution rather than buying the house. And then that just yeah. started bringing me a ton of properties. And so like I created, you know, at 23, I created this little business for, you know, I go out, I get them in credit repair, I line up movers, I find them a new rental property. And what that did is it just got me a lot of deal flow. And then from there, you know, I started learning how to actually analyze the deals from there. How did you go from helping this company to doing your own first deal? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, part of working there is they would, you know, basically one out of 10 contracts, they would allow us to purchase the property. And so it was kind of like an incentive for their employees, you know, and even with my employees today, I have that same incentive. We, I feel like employees that are passionate about real estate, they want to buy real estate. And so they were getting me involved. And so, you know, my goal at, at 23, I was seeing all these guys making tons of money. I was like, I want to be that guy. And so they gave me an option, you know, basically on my 10th contract, I, I was able to start picking out the one that I wanted. That's cool. I never, I've never heard that before from a company, but I really love that as well. That I, cause yeah, it gives, it gives the person who's working for you something to look forward to. Hey, when I do 10 deals that way also, it's not like, I mean, I, I mean, like I've worried in the past about hiring, you know, wholesalers or, or people to work with me. Like what if they just go steal the first deal or second deal? Um, did they have a way to prevent that? And then, you know, like after the 10th deal, did you get to pick any deal or was there a certain, like it was just number 10? Uh, it was after our 10th deal. I got to pick any deal that I found after that. And I still okay. have to pay the company their, their fee, uh, their, yeah. their fee, which, you know, that's part of the job. And, um, you know, and I think with them, you know, I mean, a lot of the guys actually, so it was kind of weird. I was like this 23 year old guy. And then all the other sales guys were like 35, 40 and 50 years old. And so I was the young guy in the group, but I was also the guy working the most. I was working like 60 hours a week. And I was doing by after a year in, I was doing two to three times more deals than everybody else. And so they're like, who's this young kid? And, but you know, none of the older guys, they were focused more on the paycheck than they were about buying real estate. So, you know, besides my business partner, we were the only two guys in the company actually taking the employee option, which was kind of crazy to us. Like, you know, cause you know, yeah. for me, real estate's about building wealth, not just making income. And, you know, it's, it, you, you can do both, but at the same time, if you just rely on checks, you're going to run out of checks at some point. And yep. so, you know, my goal was not to just get involved and make a bunch of checks. It was to, I want to build wealth. And, and, um, you know, so my first goal was to buy my own property, you know, which happened about 11 months into the product uh, or about a year into to working there. All right, so let's talk about that first property. What was that? So it was uh, in Burien, Washington, which is a sub market of Seattle. It's about, uh, you know, it's about uh, 10 miles or five miles, five, 10 miles south of Seattle, the core area. 
And it actually, well, the reason I picked it, it was a 2001 built townhome. It was a townhome style, really good condition, and needed carpet and paint. And at 23, I just knew I really didn't know how to renovate a property. And it, that was not my skill set. My skill set was finding the deal. And so I wanted to find something low maintenance that wasn't going to distract me from my daily duties of working. And so I found this newer building. It was, uh, I paid $176 for it. At the time, it was worth $245. So it had that equity position that I needed, you know, because also what I was looking for was something with at least a 20% equity position or discount because I wanted to, you know, at 23, I didn't have a whole lot of money either. So I, 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 what I had to do was line up financing for a first and a second with somebody so I could refinance them out of the deal. And so I was looking for something that didn't need a lot of work that I could refinance quickly that had a 20% equity position. And, uh, you know, for me, I, you know, I'm a firm believer once you're a new, if you're a newer investor, don't, don't bite off more than you can chew. So it was a yeah. really good property for me to just start with. And it cash flowed me about $250 a month too. So it was just kind of a win for me. Okay. So it was a rental property. How did you finance it then? Did you say that? Yeah. So how I finance it, I actually, um, did a first mortgage with a hard money lender around town. Okay. And then I got, uh, one of our uh, investor clients that liked me from finding them deals. Uh, what I did is I, did a really good in or in-depth analysis of the property to make sure he knew the equity position was there. Yep. And then, uh, I got fully pre-qualified for a refinance with a hundred percent commitment from the lender. And so I went to him and said, Hey, can you do me a saw? I'll pay you. You know, I paid him 12% interest and he did my second mortgage for me. And then cool. he felt comfortable cause I was all prepared. And, um, you know, so I was in and out of the loans. I was in only hard money for two months because it didn't need very much work. So, wow. you know, and got him refinanced and that was my first, deal. And then from there, I actually took a HELOC out on the equity to then be able to purchase my next property. Um, so I used that 20% to get me into the next few deals from there. That's cool. All right. So you, you bur- basically the way we talk about today, right? It's burying. You bought it. It didn't sound like it needed that much of a rehab, but you bought it, rehabbed it, refinanced it, paid off the hard money lender and the private lender, which is a phenomenal strategy, by the way. And then you then now you own this rental property, it's cash flowing. And because you had still equity in it, you were able to tap into the equity using a home equity line of credit and go buy something else. Am I, did I sum that up good? Yeah. And so what I did is I didn't want to overfinance the deal. And so the HELOC gave me that, you know, instead of having to get a private money lender at that point, it, it gave me an additional about 40 grand with a bank financing to be my next down payment. So then my goal of my next purchase was to find something very similar kind of situation with a 20% equity or more. And then that I only had to put $40,000 down. So I had to find something that, uh, with a purchase of less than 200 grand. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. So, but cool. yeah, the, the leverage put me into a whole nother position, but that that's why buying that first deal is so important to get a good equity spread. Cause you can maximize off that and get into and start building your portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. I mean, like, I'm a big, big believer in buying stuff that you can like build that equity right away. And again, how do you balance though? I'm curious between somebody who's just getting started, they're brand new, they're looking for their first deal, buying a deal that has tons of equity and just buying something so they get their foot in the door. If you're talking to a new investor, how do you typically advise them? Like how good of a deal should they go for their first deal? And where's that line between just getting something done? You know, what I always tell people, and this is the same thing I do myself, is what kind of capital, you know, like as an investor, I always have a certain amount of money set aside for my investing in long-term holds, whether it's because I'm also a big flipper. And so I flip about 100 homes a year. And what I do is I take 30% of that profit 
off the flips and I allocate it for my buy and hold. Um, oh, cool. And so, cause that's, you know, like, a, like we were saying, money comes and goes. And for me, if I take 30% aside, it's going to build my wealth, not just my income. And so, uh, you know, for a newer investor, I always tell them, Hey, the first thing you want to do is find out how much money you have to work with. And then from there, build the plan off of it. And if you only have 10, 20 grand, that's okay. You just have to start setting your plan accordingly to what you can do with that 10,000. When I'm talking to an investor, if I only have 10,000 I want to put to work, I might look at cheaper submarkets out of Seattle because you can still get a good buy and hold and get good cash flow off it and put it to work. Because sometimes just getting your first deal done is the most important thing because you get to learn your processes, you get to learn your strengths and weaknesses. And then just don't buy any deal that crosses your plate that's a big discount deal because if you're also new, you might not have that construction background. You know, for me, like I didn't go, I, I kept all with condos at first because they were easy for me to do. And then once I started flipping a lot of homes, it gave me that skill set to buy these deeper discounted properties and then get them, uh, you know, uh, uh, refinanced and pull out cash and then reinvest the cash. And so, you know, I kind of took in steps. So my first four buy and holds were all condos. And, you know, as long as they were good deals on the condo and I believed in the market and the rents were very consistent, like that was a good way for me to go. Plus, as a landlord, I kind of like the condos to handle all the exterior maintenance. Like yeah. I didn't want to have to deal with all the maintenance and the wear and tear because I didn't have the skill set to do it now. Now, nowadays, I don't really buy condos because I do have that skill set, but it's a very good starting way. Or, you know, sometimes buying a newer built house is good too, just because, you know, as you're learning all your maintenance uh, yep. kind of issues. Yeah, that's, that's a really good tip. I mean, like, I've always been nervous about condos, but then I look at them. I mean, like, I got a buddy out here in Hawaii. His name's Greg. And Greg buys condos up in like, you know, near the airport area. Not like, not the greatest neighborhood, not the greatest complex, uh, pretty low income. But the guy's picking up condos for, He's significantly cheaper than the average thing in Hawaii. And he's making cash flow. Like, like you, I should get Greg on the show sometime because it's like stupid good cash flow yeah. on these properties that are like section eight, like lower end condos. But when he explains this to me, he's like, look, they take care of all the exterior maintenance. They take care of all the, the building itself. I go in, he completely renovates these condos uh, when he gets them, which still doesn't cost that much money because they're little one bedroom, like cement boxes, essentially. And uh, the guy's just making a killing off it. So anyway, I, I, I was always scared of condos, but I never got into them. But it can be yeah. a fantastic way to get started. Yeah, you're probably not going to make, you know, you're not going to scale necessarily condos to thousands of units. Uh, some people do, I suppose, but. Yeah, not a bad idea to get started. Yeah, and there's because condos do have risk. You want to make sure the HOA certs are yeah. reserves because that can really affect your cash flow. You know, like one condo, I got hit with a nine thousand dollars assessment. I wasn't really really. That's, that's the part no one talks about. Is we all know there's yeah. an HOA fee every month, but you can work that into your numbers. What you can't work in is when oh a roof fell, a tree fell on the roof, and there's no money in our fund, so everybody's got to kick in eight grand to pay for a new roof. And that goes like yep. two years of your cash flow is gone with something you couldn't control. Yeah. And that's, and that is, I mean, the one thing is the maintenance is nice because they take care of it. But then again, you also have HOA people who are not usually investors hiring out the, the work. And that was my biggest problem. Like you guys just spent, you know, I remember I had that assessment. It was for a fence in a roof. And they spent a ridiculous amount of money on fences. And I was like, I'm not it's okay like, with it's it. It's like when the government tries to take over and run a project. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's like exactly. no motivation to do it cheaply. And you're like, this is seven times what I would pay for that same fence. And they're like, yeah, well, we're the HOA. Yeah, that's funny. And I can't, I can't stand wasted 
budgets. It drives me yeah. nuts. So yeah. Um, All right. So let's let's go. You mentioned a second ago something that was kind of shocking. You said I flip around a hundred houses a year. Is that what you said? Yeah, but that's 100. crazy. Okay, so I want to know how did you go from first of all, what, like, you know, how do you go from the guy who buys a condo and then buys a second one to I flip a hundred houses a year? I mean, can you walk us through in like a minute? Like, how did you go through that transformation? Yeah, well, hey, I'm just a little crazy and I like to work too much, but uh, <laughs> yes. and I think I'd like to torture myself. But uh, you know, when we so I got involved in real estate in 2005 and six you know, and then we started our, I started my business in 2008 on my own. That was right when the market just fell off a cliff. And so during that time, you know, we were starting from scratch, you know, back then investors didn't want to touch where you could just give something, someone for free and they would not want it. They're like, Oh, yeah. real estate. I don't want it. And yeah. so what we had, what I started doing is we'd as a wholesaler, we'd find these really good deals back then, because again, even sellers were just giving away their properties and, but no one wanted to buy them that much in like 2008, nine and 10. And so, you know, what we did is we kind of became the buyers. And for us, it was about, you know, cause again, wholesaling wasn't that profitable either. You know, you get a really good deal and maybe you get five grand out of it. And yep. so we decided to, you know, we got lined up with a couple of different lenders to, to finance us. And we started with just kind of cosmetic flips where we would actually do them a little bit nicer than everything else. Like add in the extra tile, the granite and be very thrifty about how we would buy these things. And also we would factor they'd be worth 10 to 20% less by the time we were done with them. And so what it did is we started with one to two and we're like, okay, well, we're making 20 grand a house. And this is something we can live off of because wholesaling was really low. Because you know a lot about real estate is just adapting to the market. And yeah. you got to put together your systems with whatever's going on in the current market conditions. And so for us, because no one was really buying, it allows us to get some really good deals out there and then we just started flipping slowly and kind of building our systems and, you know, uh, you know, went from doing like 10 the first year and then we started doing 20. And then by the time the market started heating up in 2013 and 14, we had already started, go, we go, we kind of saw the trend and we went heavy in and started doing about 40 to 50 houses at a time with a big team. Then we saw all the upside in appreciation. And so, you know, like right now I'm not flipping, you know, I have been doing about hundred a year this year. I'll probably do 50 cause I'm just trying to be more strategic with the market. Sure. Conditions. But yeah, it's just hard work and no one wanted to buy it. So we just took the risk and bought it ourselves. That's, that's amazing. I love, I love that story. Cause people listen to the show. A lot of them are on their first deal, their first condo, their second, their third, their fourth. And so I just like people to know, like it, it doesn't take 20 or 30 years to scale up to a sizable business. Like you just, you know, I don't know, put in the work, like constantly learning from your mistakes, figuring out what you can do better next time. And having that vision, I guess, has kind of moved you forward, which is, which is awesome. Now you said we, who is we, like you have a partner in, in, involved in this or, or somewhat, right? Yeah. My, uh, my partner, Will Heaton. So we've been uh, okay, yep. partners. Since, I mean, we were actually roommates when we started in college or no, oh, he, nice. he's, he's six years old. He's older than me. He's six years older, but uh, I would mean him are roommates when he started working at this, this uh, uh, foreclosure company. Um, he, he's been a sales guy for a long time. And then, so we've been partners since day one in real estate together and we haven't shifted since and we own all our business together. We own um, all of our rentals together, except for I, I do own a few of my own personal rentals uh, that I'm always okay. trading around. Uh, but yeah, we're just 50, 50 partners. That's cool. So let's talk about that for a minute. What, what made you want to partner with him? Like what made, what made him a good partner and, and kind of maybe relate that to people listening to the show? How can they find a good partner? Like, I mean, obviously it's been good for you guys. You've been blown up. What made that so good? 
You know, the biggest thing with, I've had a lot of partnerships over the years and, you know, some have worked really well and some have not worked that well. And, uh, you know, having a partner, my biggest thing is making sure that a, your core values are on the same page. Right. And that's, well, it starts with integrity, it starts with honesty, and then then also starts with work ethic. Like everyone's got to be on the same work ethic page. And then Will and I, we just had a passion for not just, again, going out and making checks. We wanted to build wealth. And, you know, that, that's been our focus. We went from, I think, or probably in 2009 was the first year we bought our properties together. And, you know, we started with a couple and now we're up to over 250 doors. And so that's because me and him are on the same vision, the same line that we want to build a long-term wealth portfolio of real estate. And so as long as our core values and core, uh, investing principles stay together, then, you know, we've been able to be really good partners. I mean, we probably had only like six major issues, like confrontation, you know, like big discrepancies in how we decide things in the last 12 years. So it's very, very rare. We're just on the same page. Okay. So, That's so cool. of these 250 doors, what are they made up of? Are they single family, multifamilies, mobile home parks? Uh, they're a little, they're a little bit of everything, but we have probably about 10 single family properties, uh, for us, we hold single family properties if they have upside with zoning or, you know, some properties, well, Hey, we bought them right in 2008 and they're really cheap, but they're on very large pieces of land in some sub markets in Seattle. So we feel like the next building boom is when we'll probably develop those and sell those lots off or build on them. Uh, but not this, this building boom. And then we own, uh, we have a lot of rooming houses where we take single family houses and we turn them into, uh, you know, eight and 16 unit, uh, rooms next to the university of Washington, any kind of core school. We're actually doing one where we're doing a 60 rooming house in Capitol Hill right now, where we're taking an art building and put 60 doors in. It's a very complex project. Yeah. And then we Wait, do a lot of duplexes and fourplexes too with um, And we like things with extra zoning, you know, they have L zoned and they can be, you know, development down the road. Let's talk about this rooming house thing. This blows my mind. 60, 60 like rooms for students. Is that yeah, that's crazy. 60. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, in, in Seattle, affordability is such an issue. And so we bought this historical building in, in Cap Hill. It's a, it's an art house. And, you know, one of the things about Seattle is they want to preserve these kind of, um, structures. And it was kind of like this, it was more a place for vagrants really, but they called it the art house. <laughs> and so when we went to them with this proposal, we were a little worried about it because Seattle does like to, I mean, they'll stomp on some development because they want to keep the core uh, neighborhood together. Yeah. But the fact that we're rolling out affordable housing and they worked with us so easy because there's so much demand for it. They worked with us on all different angles. And so what people need is a place to live and they want a nice place. And so these rooming houses we do, we actually strip them all the way down to the studs, make them really nice, all nice kitchens, all nice flooring, solid doors, and they can live there for 999 bucks a month. And so with Seattle and kind of the hipster movement, people yep. like shared living, you know, there's, we work and co-living and, uh, they, they like it. And so what it really does though, it, it takes a normal deal and you can hyper accelerate the return by putting the right plan together. And so that's why we came up with these rooming houses. This is fascinating to me. So you're, is there like a common area? It's almost like a giant dorm, but it's a, but it's not like a dorm. I mean, it's like, well, is it like a, a, I mean, like a hostel? Yeah. I wonder like, yeah, that was like a hostel, like, that kind of the feel it has. Yeah, so this one's a little bit more complex. Like uh, I'm doing another one too next to University of Washington where I'm taking a triplex, the zone okay. SF5000, but it's grandfathered in. And I'm turning that into, uh, or no, it's a duplex, excuse me. And I'm turning it into 16 rooms rather than a duplex. 
And so with these rooming houses, what we do is we do like a really big kitchen, chef style kitchen with a big living area, uh, flex area. And so each floor usually has its own little, either uh, the main floor will have a huge kitchen. And then each floor has a little sub kitchen with a washer dryer area. And then what typically we'll do is like in maybe one third of the units, we'll actually plumb in little small wet bars too for them. And those might go for like 1100 a month instead of 999 to give them a little extra space or the okay, bigger yeah. But people really, you know, most of what we get is, you know, a lot of them are actually, to be honest, it's like they're, they're foreign students coming over. They kind of mind their own business. They want a nice, clean place to live. And, uh, you know, and we, that's why we, we do them to like high end new construction quality. So they get a really good place and comfortable place to live. And they, people kind of mind their own business and if they have their own space, you know, they're, they're good with it. We do try to get in, you know, if we have 16 rooms, we're trying to get in like 10 bathrooms because bathrooms yeah. are a big deal. So, you know, it's usually yeah. like two rooms per bathroom, two to three rooms. And then some will have their own in-suite bathrooms that we'll charge a little bit more for. Okay. Is that, again, this is, this just blows my mind. I love this idea. So does the government, because it is low income housing and they need housing for students and stuff. So they're okay with like, they, they work with you on this. They, they work with the zoning on this. Is that how that, like, how do you get through that? So like in neighborhoods and all that. How the zoning works in Seattle is you can put in, if you have an SF 5,000 property, you can actually put in eight bedrooms there. Well, you can't do more than eight at that point. So really, you know, so when you're picking these, you could go get a 6,000 square foot building, but you're only still going to get eight bedrooms. So there's kind of this sweet spot with the size of building that you can get. So that's kind of, we learned that in the kind of downturn is we were actually looking at a house next to university of Washington and it was, it wasn't a good enough deal for a flip and it didn't really pencil as a rental, but we knew it was 390 next to the UW. And at the time, again, it wasn't that good of a deal, but we saw potential. We were like, this 390 next to UW, this is a good buy. And so actually Will, my partner came up with the idea and he's like, Hey, there's this rooming house thing. Let me dig into this. And then, so we took this, we paid 360 for it. We put 250 grand into the building and made it really nice. And we, you know, it was our first one. So we had a little bit of inefficiencies on our construction. Maybe we made it a little too nice, went a little too in depth, but that thing brings in now $9,000 a month in rent. And so our, our oh. cash on cash return is astronomical. Whereas every other investor, and this was a property just sitting on the market. No one yeah. wanted it. And we just kept looking at it. We're like, this is a good piece of property. And it was also next to a freeway too. So like the flippers didn't want it. The rental people didn't like it. The zone SF 5,000. And then since then, so now, you know, we we're into it like 600 grand brings in nine grand a month, which is just a ridiculous amount for a core neighborhood in Seattle. And then since then the zoning's changed and now we can actually build, it got upzoned because, you know, when we do look at these buy and holds, we're also looking at path of progress, like what's going on in the neighborhoods. And that's why we liked this one. It seemed more commercial than residential. Uh, So they upzoned it and now we can actually build two houses in the backyard too. And that's cool. It, and so if you, you put the right strategy together and not just overlook the just one sitting there that everyone's overlooking, then, you know, you can get something that's a gold mine. Yeah. Such a good, such a good tip. There's, there are ways, again, real estate, I like to say this a lot. Real estate is not two dimensional. It's three dimensional. Like a lot of people look at a deal and they're like, well, they're asking 360 or 390 or whatever, you know, like they're asking this price. I could rent it out for this much. Doesn't make sense. And they move on. But I, like you guys definitely have shown like, like you're like, well, what if we did this and what if we turn it into this and what if we did that? It's like a multidimensional project. And when you start thinking that way in real estate deals, like the 
to use a cliche, like the world's your oyster, right? Like, I mean, like there's a lot, not that every deal is going to work out, but the number of potential properties out there, it just, the sky's the limit. There's so much out there. If you just learn to think three dimensional like that. Now, is that something you just get over time or like, how, how did you learn to start thinking more creatively like that? You know, I think the, the credit actually goes to our flipping processes because we got, you know, a lot of, even back in the day, we would buy these small houses and carve them up into like, you know, we'd get, take out a 950 square foot house and turn it into a three bedroom, two bath yeah. affordable product. And so we got really used to putting together like value engineered design. And, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, well, if we can rent these out for eight bedrooms legally, we can put our same flip process into our rentals. And, you know, cause a lot of times people stay clear from the major fixtures in the rentals and I don't blame yep. them. They, they're a lot of work. You get dead time on your money, you know, for a year you're out, you're not making income, but if you put the right strategy together and you have the right systems, you can really maximize out these returns And the flipping really benefited us because we know construction we know how to design things. We know how to get the permit pushed through and, and we know how to get the inspections done. And so it's been a huge flipping is good for income and maybe not for long. I mean, it helps long-term wealth by building your capital, but it also gives you very good systems and tools because flipping is not easy. So the more you learn on it, the more tools you have for your rental portfolio. So let's talk about the, the construction stuff. Cause that is something that scares a lot of people. Yep. Well, first of all, when you're first, not you necessarily, but when people are first getting into it, do you have any advice on how they can better estimate the cost of a rehab? Like when they're, when they're brand new, like how did you do it? Or how, how do you know, you know, newbies can do that? Yeah. Construction is really tough. Cause I think a lot of investors, a lot of people I work with, you know, they do this, this cat and mouse game with them. Like they're like, Oh, my budget's a hundred. So I'm going to tell the guy 90 and then he's going to come at 140, And then we're going to try to meet in the middle without really yep. going through and logically mm-hmm. breaking it down. And so what I've done is I've created a, a spreadsheet for my whole team to use that breaks down square footages and then it breaks down install rates and, and material rates. And the best thing an investor can do is find out what a normal install rate is per item. Because a lot of people don't even know that. Like an electrician should charge you $25 a fixture to install that fixture. That's a pretty normal rate. You know, yeah. on the high side, it's $50. Getting to know those things, you know, like if I break down electrical, it's, I know a panel is $1,500 in Seattle. That's a normal rate. A fixture is $25. Running wires, $3 a square foot. So I get all these numbers from the electricians, compile it. And then when they give me a high bid, I then just work them backwards and say, okay, well, how much are you charging me for the panel? How much are you charging me to run wire? And you just have to really know your install rates. But the whole back and forth thing with the contractor is not a good method. Because it just allows for massive amounts of change orders. And so you really want to get the install rates and everything figured out and working with a really good team that can help you with that. That's great. I think what I I love about what you just said was that you don't just... Everybody asks, how do you calculate rehab costs? Like It's something that we can just say, well, here's a cheat sheet. Every contractor is going to charge the same thing. It's so complicated to explain to people how that works that there is never going to be an easy way... You have to do exactly what you just said. How much is it going to cost you to do the wiring? Why does it cost that much? How does a contractor look at it? Does he look at square feet? Does he look at how many boxes he's going to put in? They have a method or a metric that they use. And you're asking the right questions so that you can understand it from their perspective. 
And I tell people that all the time when they're saying, well, how do I know what the ARV is going to be? Well, do you know what an ARV's method, I mean, sorry, an appraiser's method is when they look at a property, how they come up with mm-hmm. what the price is? Because if you see it from an appraiser's standpoint, you can get a really good idea what your ARV is going to be. If you know how a contractor looks at a home, how they bid it, how they price it, you can get a really good idea. You're doing that really good, James. Like everything that you've said is you, you look at a problem. All right, I want to buy that house, but it costs too much money. How could I chop it up into little pieces and rent them all out to make that work? What would I need to know in order to do that? And you've just systematically broke this down into smaller pieces that then it's very easy for your brain to look at that problem and say, I can make this work or not. Yeah, I just, uh, I always work backwards off the issue. Yeah. And the other thing is I dictate where the contractor get their materials from. And I know that pricing. So like I'm saying, Hey, you're going to get this floor from this area or this supplier. It's a dollar 65 for the materials. And an average install rate is a dollar 50 to install this. And so when they give me a high quote, I can ask them a logical question. And if they can't answer it, they'll usually come down or they're just not the right guy. And they don't know how to estimate something regardless. And so at that point, you don't want to hire them anyway. Isn't that a hundred times better than just living in fear of, I hope my contractor is not ripping me off. Or I don't want to do this at all because a contractor might rip me off. Like that's what Brandon and I see all the time is, well, I don't know. What if they're taking advantage of me? But what you just said is, well, I know the materials are $1.65 a square foot. I know the install rate's $1.50 a square foot. So it should be a little over $3 a square foot times however many square feet I need. And if he's at $10 a square foot, that's not, he either doesn't know what he's doing or he's dishonest and I can use someone else. There's no fear. There's no apprehension. There's no worry. There's no anxiety. It's a very easy, quick cut decision you can make. Yeah. And you really got to focus. And I do something I call it the bundle method where I'll take my whole budget and I'll chop it into like six sections. And that way my, like for construction, I can take my kitchen cabinets. I can just go to my kitchen cabinet company and I know exactly what they charge me for the, the cabinets, the counters and the install. And so I take those things away from the contractor because I don't want their ambiguity to kind of mess up my budget. Yeah. So I'll take my whole budget and chop it into six really systematic things. Like I have them do all the hard work and the planning, but the easy stuff I'll pull out for myself and just call my, my dependable subs that will give me that guarantee price. And you know, I bet if you get good at this, you could probably go to a contractor and say, here's what I need. Here's what I'll pay you. And you already have it broken down. And I bet you a really good percentage of contractors would actually prefer because they're not good at numbers. <laughs> That's not what they do. They like to build things and get sawdust in their hair. They don't like to have to use spreadsheets and numbers. And if you could go to them and say, here's what I need. Here's what I'm going to pay you. Here's what it's going to cost. And they can just look at that and say, oh, I'm going to make $7,000. You got it. And now you don't have to worry about overpaying. I love You're the only guest I've ever heard that said that. That's really good. For the people who are out there saying, well, how would I ever figure out what a cabinet costs or how am I going to get these numbers? What James did was he went and worked for another company that was already doing this and he built his skills serving somebody else. And that was how he got started. He got knowledge. He got mm-hmm. confidence. Then he did his own thing. That's what I'd recommend if that's what your problem is. Well, I don't know how much that stuff costs. Well, go to work for a company that's already doing this. Go to work for a guy like James. Figure out a way to make it worth his while to hire you. That's the fastest way you're going to learn. Now, one thing I want to know is you're definitely doing big things. You're good at what you do. And you're very humble about it, by the way, which is impressive. So good on you, James. Tell us a little bit about where you're finding deals, because that's probably the number one objection that I hear from people other than I'm scared is there's no deals out there. Yeah, I hear the same thing. People like, oh, I'm going to different states and there's nothing wrong with investing in different states at all. I'm a firm believer you should just invest in everything, especially just just learn it before you invest there. I like to play in my own sandbox, which is King Snow in Mission Pierce County. I like to be able to drive it. I know my crews. I know my systems. And I do a little bit more complex plans. So I need to have my systems prepared. 
But everyone always asks me, like, how do you get these amazing deals? I buy them right off the market 60% of the time. You know, and I buy them off wholesalers. I also own a wholesaling company. So we, we direct market to sellers as well. But the best deals that I find are right on the market. And they're usually misrepresented by the broker. The broker doesn't quite know what they have going on there. Or maybe it was a flipped inspection deal. And the previous buyer's inspection was so gnarly, it freaked out the broker. Mm. And, you know, so we're always combing through the MLS. And I love the ones that are just sitting there on the market. I mean, even my own... Like I just flipped my own house basically in, in Bellevue and I, I paid eight fifty for it. I just sold for 3.1 over a two and a half year period. Wait, 3.1? 3.1. And that, and that property that I bought was on the market for 360 days before I even, and I bought it 10 grand off list. Like wow. and the, the seller wouldn't budge. No one wanted it. They, everyone thought it was a teardown, which it wasn't. And so they were pricing at, at, at dirt cost. And I'm like, no, this is a structure I can fix. And I mean, it was a lot of work. I put over a million dollars into it too. So it was wow. definitely, it, it, it was, it was not easy, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, I worked for it. Uh, I, my wife worked That's, for it too. She dealt with it. Yeah. And so those deals are out there as long as you can underwrite and look at them in the correct way. Uh, we, you know, we also bought an apartment building off in Magnolia, which is a really good neighborhood in Seattle. It was sitting there for over 200 days. It flipped four times on the inspection. We ended up getting in contract 300 grand off list because it was the fourth inspection. And we bought it at a 3.2 cap, which is not a good cap rate. I would always tell people, don't buy that. Yeah. But then after raising rents, we got it to a five, which is still okay, right? But that's not my standard. But the thing that everybody missed is we have short platted off two lots in the back. And now we're building two homes and it's bringing our whole basis down uh, 600, no, uh, $950,000 off because we're building the two homes and selling them off. And so it turned our 5.2 cap into now we're going to be around a nine cap in Seattle, which is amazing. This is exactly what I was saying earlier about the 3d, like thinking about real estate in three dimensions and stuff yeah. too. Like exactly what you like, you're, you're like, that's your like magic superpower. If you were like an Avenger, you'd be like the 3d real estate investor. <laughs> right, I'll get it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the one thing you have to be careful though, is don't go too cause we have learned getting into the too big of a project. You kill your return for two years. And yeah. so you need to factor in your dead time on return. And that's, we've had to learn that over the last couple of years. Like, okay, well maybe we're going to do it this way now, or we're going to do less projects to be more efficient and get the cap rate out. So you can start to over exchange. And, and, you know, so we kind of learned that and now we're kind of more balanced out. That's phenomenal. Corey Nomoto talks about that too. They do a lot of flipping in Hawaii and it's basically this, the economic concept of opportunity cost. So, yep. so you can look yeah. at it, you can say, well, I'm going to make this much money, but you also have to factor in, well, what else could I be doing with that money during the time? Like what you call dead time. That's a really good point. And sometimes when you, you want to get a deal or you want to brag to your friends about what you did, you can make those decisions without thinking about, well, what if I get to turn that money over four times on on flips where maybe I made half as much money, but if you did it four times during that period, you would have made twice as much in the end. So that's a very good point you're bringing up unless you can get access to other capital so that while your capital's tied up, you can still do deals with someone else's. Yeah. And it's finding deals on the MLS is really looking for that broker that doesn't know what they're selling, but also looking for that next market that's still depreciated, that path of progress. So those condos I bought originally, I ended up 1031 exchanging those into a house in Suncadia, Washington, which is kind of like a resort town because I, I saw my condos go way up in value. And I'm like, okay, these things are at the peak of a market. I need to sell that and maximize my equity. 
And I 1031 exchanged it into a vacation rental, which was totally random. But it brought in, they were renting for $1,100 a night. And then I liked that for upside because I was buying it below replacement costs. They spent $400 a foot building these houses and I was buying at $270 a foot. And so I saw the runway there. Buying and holds not just about your income you collect. It's about stre- like placing your money in markets for a couple of years and then repositioning it when the market starts cooling down. Because that's how you can hyper accelerate your appreciation and your your return by by buying it. So you're always increasing your cash flow, but also increasing your equity position, the whole Burr method, and then taking that equity and putting that equity to use. So you're not a, I'm going to buy it, hold it for the next 50 years. You're always looking, how do I get a better return on my equity that's there? That's in, you know, in, in this kind of market, I, I think we, you know, I personally think I have to be because right now markets in Seattle, there's a lot of things that peak pricing, in my opinion. And you know, I look at, okay, what's the upside? Am I going to get that much more in rent? The, the, the asset maybe has appreciated 25%. And then if I really like the building and it's just turnkey and I don't want to mess with it, then we'll leave it alone. But, or all, then I want to always increase my position. Like being an investor is my full-time job. So if it just takes me a little bit more work than to roll yeah. it over, I'll switch it over there. So, you know, I mean, even the Suncadia property, when I bought that, I was like, oh, I'm going to keep this forever. I love it. I get a vacation there. And then it went up 350 grand in value. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's, that's now going to go down because then I also saw a record number of building permits pulled there. And so I'm not only just looking at my asset, I'm looking at what's going around my, on around my asset. And so if I'm seeing a bunch of building permits pulled around one of my assets. That means there's going to be an oversupply, which is going to bring my value down. Very smart. And which also could bring my rent income down. And so then I ended up selling that and going back into a traditional investment from there. But usually I keep them for minimum two years. There's some I'm, you know, in me and Will's portfolio, there's property like that 50, uh, 60 room rooming house. We're going to keep that because that's a lot of work and it's a high income. Yeah. And that's just going to be a staple property for us. But other ones, I'll always, if I can increase my position, I'm always going to increase my position because I'm not retired yet. So that's my job is to always increase my, my investment position. Well, I talk about that in long that's distance great. real estate investing that you, return on equity is a metric you need to learn and understand. Because you, when mm-hmm. you bought the property, let's say you're getting a 10% return and rents have gone up and now you're getting a 15% return. And it's easy to say, wow, I'm crushing it. I'm doing so good. But your property has increased in value so much that the return on your equity is one or 2%. And if you were to yeah. reinvest that money, you were getting a 3% return. Now you're getting a 15% return on something new. You 5X your cash flow. And you have the value at opportunity that comes from buying a new property and turning it around. Like I'm sure you would say, James, from the deals you're doing, the money that you make, the equity that you build comes primarily from buying underperforming assets and fixing them up, making them worth more. It's that initial, I bought it cheap. I fixed it up where most of your wealth comes from. And then the rest is where we just let it go and it, and the cash flow comes in. But make sure your your equity is working for you. Look how hard you're working at what you're doing. You can't let your money not work when you're working this hard. And you understand that. And that's exactly why you're building wealth so fast is you're buying it. You're, you're making it worth a whole lot more. And then you're saying, well, is it, is this equity better spent sitting in this property or can I get more somewhere else? And then moving it into a new asset class. And you combine that with everything, you know, about real estate zoning laws, how to buy deals off the MLS, making a hostel, like all the stuff you're talking about. And you're going to accelerate your returns quite a bit. Yeah. And it's really just comes down to timing too. It's because right now the market is still appreciating in a lot of neighborhoods, especially in, in Washington. And so for me, 
I'll probably stop exchanging as much once the market kind of flatlines out. And the other thing I pay attention to when I'm trading around is bank rates are really low right now. So it's easy for me to trade around. But once rates creep up, which they will eventually, it's then it doesn't make it as worth your while to trade around a property because now you're also trading. You may be trading into a better discounted asset, but your bank financing could be two points mm. higher. And so there's all these things outside the box that you've got to pay attention to. And so for me, the last five years, I've seen what's going on in the market. So I've been doing all my trades. But at the end of the day, when everything stops and I'm going to settle down, I'll be locked in with low rates and I'll always increase my equity and cash flow position. And so, um, and if, if, if it doesn't, if I can't get a low rate and I'm not increasing my cash flow position, then I'm not going to sell that asset. Once you've got like a rooming house with 60 doors and you've got a total of 250 doors in your portfolio. And a lot of that is not just an individual house that one property manager is doing. It's, it's a property with a whole bunch of doors in it. How are you structured to collect those rents, make sure your bookkeeping gets done? I'm sure you're not making sure all 60 rooms are full in your rooming house. How have you delegated that responsibility to other people? So we used to use property managers and property managers are a good way to go. Um, they can cost quite a bit. And, you know, once you get to a certain portfolio, what we, we actually have two full-time leasing people on our, our staff now. And so we just have it all in house. Accounting is all done in house. Uh, we use a Yardy system for collecting rents and, um, you know, and so it just really comes down to you always want to analyze your portfolio, what your expenses, and if property management, usually we can get it for about five to six percent locally if you're giving them a lot of business. So we run our five to six percent cost, and then you know at that point it makes a lot. It's a, it's half the price to have two full time salary people. And in addition to, we also can control the maintenance cost. Because we want to be do yeah. our own maintenance because mm-hmm. we're thrifty, Ma- bad or not bad property managers, lazy they, property they, managers that send the first handyman they find that charges three times what your guy would pay. I, yeah, that's your biggest expense with single family housing. Yeah, that's how I pull my hair out. I'm like, you just yeah. spent how much on a toilet? Mm-hmm. Like, yep. yeah, I just can't. I still have that that cheap side to me where I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not paying that. Yeah, and so we, I mean, just putting together the right systems, and that's where you have to look at your portfolio and go, okay, well, how much time do I have? You know, if I'm a Microsoft guy. I'm probably still going to use property management because I'm not a full-time investor at that point. Yep. And so for me, like being a full-time investor is my business. So I, I, you know, we had to hire and staff accordingly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and a lot of, a lot of real estate, what I found is like, if you can get to that certain level, there is that level, like at 20 units, it might not be worth it. To, you can't hire some, I mean, it's not worth it to hire someone in house to run that at 30 units. It might not be worth it. You're still doing it yourself, but there gets to be this point. Maybe it's at a hundred units, maybe at 200 where you can bring that in house and then lower all your costs. So it's almost like I'm, I'm looking at this with mobile home parks right now and with other, with uh, you know apartment complexes. What number do I need to get to where everything becomes cheaper at that point? Cause of the economy is the scale. So like, I'm not saying I'm going to go out and buy bad deals, but, but what I can look forward to is, Hey, I can drop that property management cost from, you know, 7% down to 3% once I get over 200 units, cause then I'm going to bring it all in house or something. It's a, it's another interesting way to look at a kind of a three-dimensional deal. Right. Yeah. And you always so, just want to perfect your return, especially if you're yeah. in a stabilization period where you're like, okay, I'm making 10%. Can I get it to 11 by doing nothing? Yeah. And, or by, by changing things, not doing nothing, but uh, changing things around. Yeah, definitely. Well, Hey, I want to, I want to move us along to the next segment of the show and, and dive deeper into one of your particular deals. So it's time for deal, deal, deal deep dive. dive.
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate finance and advisory services firms in the nation. As an unparalleled leader in commercial real estate, CEO Willie Walker frequently appears as an expert on major platforms like CNBC and the New York Times. He's even been on the Bigger Pockets podcast network too. On the Walker webcast, you'll hear from guests like A-Rod, renowned economist Dr. Peter Linneman, and experts from Walker and Dunlop's capital markets, research, and investment sales groups. So fire up the Walker webcast on your favorite podcast app or join live on Wednesdays to see Willie interact with his guests. Plus, you can always catch the replay on demand afterward. Stay ahead of the curve with insights for life from the Walker webcast. Learn more and subscribe to the Walker webcast at walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. And be sure to follow Walker and Dunlop on all your favorite social media channels too. That's walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. All right, the deal deep dive. This is the part of the show where we dive deep into one deal that you've done and, and ask a series of questions about it. So uh, let's see. You got a property in mind then before I ask the questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, right. uh, I got one I just closed on. I'm about ready to list one of them too. Uh, it's kind of All a right. flip rental uh, pseudo. So, yeah. Perfect. All right, well, that's the first question is what kind of property is this? Is it a multifamily, single family? And then where is it? Uh, so it's in uh, Olympic Hills in Seattle, Washington, which is about 10 miles north of downtown. Uh, okay. So it's a good transitional neighborhood, borders with Shoreline. 
It's actually a single family purchase where I purchased three single family houses. And then it also had a detached thousand square foot ADU in the back and a detached three car garage in the back as well. Okay. Wow. It, yeah. It was a deal I bought off a builder that needed cash. So three single family houses and a thousand square foot ADU, like an extra unit. So it's almost like four houses, but not really. Right. Yeah. For, uh, it, it was the, the ADU is bootlegged into one of them, but yes. Yep, okay. Yeah. So four, basically three and a half houses and, then, and a big, big garage. All right. And you, yeah, which is good for toys. So <laughs> that's awesome. You said you found yeah. it from a builder. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, uh, you know, one good thing about buying properties in Seattle for so long is people kind of know us that if we give them their word, we're going to close on it. And um, so there was a builder, you know, a lot of people are doing uh, like we've been talking about 1031 exchanging and a builder kind of got caught and needed to sell off some properties. And uh, but he's also a very experienced guy. He wasn't going to give them away. We came to terms and I ended up buying these these properties. It was a combined purchase of one point five, six million for three houses. And he had been shopping it actually for like. 60 days before he found me to buy it. And the reason being is a lot of people just said no, because on a cap rate basis, there were rentals for them. It was like a four cap on houses in Seattle, which isn't very good. And then the equity position, I paid five, basically 540 per house and they're worth 699 to 750. So there wasn't that big of a discount for a flip either. And so when he ran it by me originally, it was like, no, I'm not really into this, but I went and drove it and took a look at it. I was like, Oh, okay. No, I think I, I can come up with a plan here because, you know, partially what he did too, is he built three houses, built that ADU in the back, built a garage in the back, and they were all crossed all over property lines. And so like the house had the garage, but you couldn't get to it. And it was just kind of a mess. And, um, and so kind of what I, I kind of dug into, I was like, well, I really like this property with the ADU in the garage because, you know, it will rent out, uh, you know, for that front house will rent out for 3,500, the ADU will rent out for about 1,900. And then I can rent the garage out for 200 or $100 per bay. So, you know, there was a combined rent of around 6,000 a month on this property. But the rest of the properties were kind of these like drag downs. And then yeah. at the purchase of 550 and the renovation, I'm like, this still isn't that good of a cap rate. So what it ended up doing was looking at two of the properties and running the flip numbers on them. And because they're pretty cosmetic, what, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of doing, I'm listing one this week is selling off two of the property. I, I short platted them boundary line to adjust everything around to where the one property now had all that had the house, the ADU and the, the garage. And I'm flipping the two houses to take my basis down on that property. And by flipping the two houses, I'm actually generating about 110 in income there, which is going to take my 550 purchase on that one building. And it brings it down to 440, which is a more, it ends up being a payment of uh, $2,400 a month, taxes and insurance included, which is now going to bring me in six grand a month in income. So after that's awesome, I have no money in the deal. Uh, Once I'm done flipping them, I'll have no money in the deal and generating about 2,500 to three grand a month. Plus, I get a stick on my crap in the garage. (laughs) That's amazing. So, okay, let let me dive in a little bit. I was going to ask him, did you just pay what he wanted? He 1.56, that what you ended up coming at? Or did you negotiate him down a little bit? Or? Oh, well, at first I was going to tell him 500 a house. And then I drove yeah. it and kind of looked at it. And I was like, oh, no, I can pay this. And then like, I wanted to realize it before someone else realized what they could do with it. You know, I think yeah. everyone kind of blew by it, you know, because there's yep. houses right by that for sale for 575 dated. So it didn't look like there was a lot of discount on that the houses. Yeah. And so... You know, for me, I wanted to kind of 
naturally, I always like to grind people down, but at the same time, I don't want to lose a good deal. Sure. Yeah. And if I can make an extra two grand a month and get storage for free, I mean, I'm going to, you know, I would be kicking myself a year down the road. Um, yeah. The other thing that also passed while I was in contract on this is that new ADU rule in the back to where now I can actually condo off that back house in if I ever want to. And so now the combined value is worth like over a million and I'm only going to owe 450 on it. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know Seattle had that. I know we have it out here in Hawaii where you can condo out your ADU and separate it. I didn't know Seattle has that. It's cool. You can't, it's been around for a while. There's a trick to it. So uh, maybe uh, I can explain the trick to you later. Sure. That's cool. About going through the county. Uh, so like at first I was like, no, nah, I'm not really into this. I didn't really like the street. It was surrounded by apartment buildings. So I was like, yeah, the upside of the, the houses are really there. But then once I did all the math on it, I was like, oh no, this is going to work. And so, you know, I was paying them a, a little bit more of a premium on it, how I looked at it. So because I was paying them a premium, I got cheaper financing lined up right away. He let me conventionally finance them all. So it saved me all my hard money and debt cost. Okay. And that was my thing to him. He wanted cash. And I said, well, hey, I'm going to pay you what you want, but you got to give me 40 days to close these. Yep. And by doing that, it saved me about 60 grand in hard money cost on there. And so like I, I was just by getting the 45, I gave him what he wanted. Instead of chasing and trying to get him down 60 grand, I just gave him what he wanted and, and financed yep. the deal in a different way. So how, how awesome. did you explain how you financed it, how you funded it? Um, so I funded it with, uh, I'm a, I actually really like working with credit unions and local banks, especially once you have more than eight properties financed in your name, you know, and as an investor, I, I a firm believer, you should go meet with all those people, get them comfortable with your processes. And once you get that, you can actually get pretty good financing done quickly and very low. I mean, it's not very hard. And my, my books are very complex. It's a lot of different companies feeding into each other with a lot of yeah. different write-offs. And, and so it's, it's a, I'm a mortgage guy's worst nightmare when it comes on paper, but they, you know, I, I work with Alaska credit union on these ones. They were quick, they fast. And, you know, because of the plan, I, I explained to them my plan too, and what I was doing. And so I was able to just put 10% down on all those properties as well, which usually you got to put 20% down. But after I showed them the income potential and what my plan was, they actually got it down to 10% for me. That's awesome. That's just another reason why like, yeah, getting to know those community, local, local community banks, credit unions, like, Really, really smart idea. Instead of just going to the big, you know, national banks. Yeah, uh, big national banks, they have different people making the calls and they don't know us. And and so I've always had more luck with local banks. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, what about like, so at the end of the day, you got it with 10% down, but are you going to refinance out now once you sell off those two properties? Is that the plan or how does that work from a title standpoint? I got a really good rate on the one. Okay. And so what I'm doing is the two flips are going to generate me about 120 grand in cash off. Okay. Of and so after taxes, it actually comes down to 80 grand, which is the down payment for the one. It's actually, so okay, actually yep. at the end of the day, I'm, I'm plus $30,000 in my pocket and I'm walking with two grand a month in cash flow. That's awesome. And, and I locked in a really, it was because rates dropped at that time. I think I'm at like 4.65 on a 30 year fixed rate. Cause this one I do plan on keeping for a while. Yeah. Cause I, I well, A, I need the garage. So it fits really well for my construction company. Like I can put tons of stuff in and it yep. out. So, uh, but for now I plan on keeping this one for a while. Um, but at, after everything, and that's it when I, I really realized it was a really good deal because I could flip the other two houses, basically get all my down payment back plus 20 grand and collect two grand a month. That's so cool. That's, a, that's amazing. So what, uh, I'll take the last question unless David, you want it. Lessons learned. 
All right. What's the lessons learned? Like, what have you, what have you learned on this project that you could share or that you, you know, made an impact on you? Um, the, I mean, the biggest lesson I learned on this was actually when I did my first, so when I was purchasing the property, part of it was I was going to do all the easements to get rid of the title issues with the buildings on different property lines. So originally what I did is I just went in and did an easement and an e- and recorded an easement for access. And so it cost me like three grand to do three to four grand, had to survey it out, got it all done, closed on the deal. And I was, I was about ready to list the property three weeks ago, one of them to get my cash back. And I, I screwed up. I didn't think about my plan of possibly condoing off the house down the road because to do it that way, I can't do it with the easement I recorded and I need to do a boundary line adjustment. Okay. And so I, I kind of, I, I did my first plan was, was too rushed. And so now what I had to do is unrecord the easement, go in for the boundary line adjustment. And what it's done is it's made me sit on the middle house that I'm selling for another month, which is loss of three grand at that point. Sure. But it would have been a lot more detrimental actually if I didn't do it and I sold the house and then I couldn't condo it later because it's kind of specific rules. So it's just it doing, making sure, you know, sometimes speed isn't your best friend, right? Don't rush into that project and just try to get things done. Cause my goal was to get that one flipped in 45 days, get my money back and then move on to the next deal. And I should have slowed it down because it probably would have saved me six, seven grand at the end of the day. Um, wow. It's kind of wasted money. Plus it was just sitting there. Wow. That was a phenomenal story though. Uh, very, very cool. And yeah, good luck on that project. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. If, yeah. That's, that's so cool. I love, again, I, it's just over and over and over. This theme today just keeps coming up of like just finding different creative ways, not necessarily to finance a deal, even though that was creative as well, but to put together something that might not be a deal and how to turn it into a deal. We just keep coming back to that. And I love that. That's like, that's your superpower. So yeah, keep that up. We, we call it inventing returns. Mm. Like yeah. You, know, yeah, you can't get a cap rate of five or more than, or, you know, you get a four and a half to five cap in Seattle. So we're not okay with that, but we like the area. So yep. we have to invent our own returns to get it to where like to meet our minimum standards. Yeah. It's like David and I always talk about how today's market. You don't really find good deals anymore. It's not 2012 or 2011 yep. anymore. Today you make good deals. Like you, yep. you make them by being creative and that's exactly what you've done. So <laughs> very, very cool. Well, before we get out of here, let's go over to the next segment of the show. It's time for our fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, time for the world famous fire round. Of course, these questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums, which you can visit. Everybody can go hang out there at biggerpockets.com/forums. Totally free. So let's see what some people got to ask some questions of James here. Number one, Hector from Overland Park, Kansas said, "I've got no cash, but I do have an investor willing to fund my first flip. What do I get out of it? What does he get out of it? What's the best way to approach him and form a relationship that can continue into the future? What advice you got for Hector?" Well, Hector, just like I did my first one, instead of bringing in an equity partner, I just paid him like a lender. Um, because for me, it was about getting that first deal in my name. And so you find that really good deal. And, and you know, what you want to do is you want to go, or what I did is I went to my investor with a plan of, Hey, I'm going to buy this. You're going to do my second for me. I'm going to pay you this return. And sometimes it, it makes more sense to overpay that person on a return to get the deal in your name. And then uh, get set up to get him taken out with a plan to, for, you know, give him the plan to get your money back. And then so you just pay a little bit more for your financing rather than giving up equity on your first rental. You know, you don't, that's just where I came from. I wanted to start building my own portfolio, but I offered to give him better loan terms in a safe loan rather than giving him equity. 
in the deal. All right. Beautiful. Very cool. All right. Question number two. I love hearing success stories on the podcast, but I'm wondering if you can share a deal gone wrong. Why did it fail? Bad location? Did you overpay? Bad property management, et cetera. I have more bad deal. I have, I have tons and tons of bad deal stories. Uh, <laughs> and you have to be, that's how you learn in investing. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, well, I guess going back when I was new, biggest mistake I made was jumping from buying condos to buying a really big fixer house in the middle of nowhere. And I had uh, no systems for construction. You know, I'd only done carpet paint, but it was this amazing deal. I was paying like 40 cents on the dollar for, and I just got smoked on this. Deal. Like I time and materials. It went, went six months over timeline. And then during that six month, 2008 happened and the market crashed, you know? And so I was three times the amount of budget three times over the timeline, wow. lost all my cash. And that's because I was buying what I didn't know how to buy. And so as an investor, I won't buy unless I have a process somewhat figured out for it, because that's how you can really get your butt kicked. I also, same time, I bought a commercial building during that time, which I don't buy commercial office space is what I learned. And <laughs> uh, I learned that because we bought a really cheap building in a not that good location, but it was this amazing, we were paid like $100 a square foot for this office building. But it doesn't matter if no one wants to rent it in a bad location. Yep. And so it's that vacant. And we actually had to move our whole business down there in the market crash and occupy it. And then wow. get it leased up. And that's actually how we learned condoing things off. We condored out little sections and leased it up and then moved out. But it's, it always comes down to not buying the right deal or not bu buying what you don't know. Yep. I had a, I had a mentor tell me early on in my career, like very, very early said, you can go broke buying good deals. Yes. And I didn't can. fully understand what he meant back then, but I completely understand it today. Yeah. Yeah. Just cause it's cheap. Doesn't mean, or just cause you think it's a good deal. Doesn't mean you should buy it. Uh, number three, Adam from Roxbury, Connecticut said, my tenant wants to put in a ceiling fan in the unit he's renting. He said he would buy the fan and his brother, who's an electrician would do all the wiring and install it for free. Should I allow him to do that or any advice on how to, I would should go about this? Uh, personally, I wouldn't mind if a tenant improved mine, but I also want to make sure it's my building that they get a permit and it's inspected. And yeah. you know, you don't want the liability of that thing possibly catching on fire because he had his brother do it. Yeah. You know, and personally, I don't really talk to my tenants cause I'm a softie. And yeah. so like, I'll just usually approve it. So they go through, usually my property management team will say no that and then if they ask me i'll probably say yes but get a permit that's uh you yeah, sound eerily like fine. my best friend real estate yeah i can't i can't tenants can't ask me things because i will always say yes because yeah. i'm a softie as well and so i i created systems of people who say no for me so i don't it's have insulation to. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I've you lost need. lots of rent because i let people slide because they're yep. a mom or whatever it is and yep it, it, it hurts all right Next question right there. from Mike Nelson in Miami. Does anyone have any tips to get hard money lenders to fund your deals? I will a little about me. I have a background in construction. I've done one flip, which was a big success. I also know a couple of good listing agents. Thank you. Um, you know, for me, getting my first capital was really just a, you know, so I got my first loan through a local lender. They just wanted 20% down. And so for me, it was really finding the 20% down was the harder part. I just had to make sure every property that I presented that person with had a really detailed out plan, not just construction, but I covered all different angles. Like, Hey, if I'm going to flip this property, here's my backup plan in case this doesn't flip. I'm fully pre-qualified. I can get a loan for this amount. So I always wanted to give them a really good exit strategy on it. On your, if you're doing a flip, 
one other thing you can do that's worked well for me, especially in the beginning, was bringing in an equity lender at that point. That's where I will bring in an equity lender just to build my track record because I really wanted to have 10 to 20 deals under my plate so we could kind of get it ramped up. But I didn't have the 20% down for all these deals. And so it was, I would give him way more equity in the first couple because then they saw it was a little bit less risky and then they wanted to be involved again. And I actually gave him less equity as time went on. So it went from going 50% to 25% to then just borrowing money at that point. And then as a first time flipper, the most important thing I can tell you is don't spend your profits, save your profit. It's really easy to get your first check and just blow it, save yep. it because then you don't have to bring in those equity partners. Like yeah. it's, it saves you so much money down the road. That's terrific advice. Really, really good. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people, they flip a house. I mean, I, my very first flip I ever did, I took the money and I paid for my wedding, which wasn't a bad use of the money, but yeah. like, I didn't have anything after that. I was like, well, that went, now that's gone and now I'm broke. And so like, do you feel like you know, a princess for the day though? I did. I felt right. like a princess for that, the day. That it, was, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. All right. That was great. That was great answers of the fire round. And now let's get to the last segment of the show. It's time for our famous four. All right. These are the same four questions we ask every guest every week here on the podcast. But before we ask James, those questions, Let's hear what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Hey there, Brandon. This week's guest on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast is Cody Berman. And I think your listeners are going to love this interview. Cody walks us through every step of how to bring your physical product idea to life from design to manufacture, molds, prototyping, everything you need to know to get your physical product to market. So check out this week's episode of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And now back to your famous four. All right, let's get to the famous four. Uh, number one, James, do you have a favorite real estate related book? You know what? My favorite book that anyone's ever given me is not that real estate. It's How Not to Be a Dick. <laughs> That's a book? <laughs> it's a book. I got it in my drawer right here. <laughs> That's funny. My, uh, my employee gave it to me. Brand she said I was Brandon's going to send me that now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to send everyone that cop. Uh, yeah. You know, I started with Rich Dad, Poor Dad way back in the day. Uh, it was just, uh, it was the first book that someone gave me when I was 21. Where most of the reading I do is actually more economics now and conditions than, than actual like strategy because my strategy is based on market conditions than anything else. It sounds like that book might be the 2019 version of how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> yeah. do you have that one we can trade also I'll, I'll, I'll trade out <laughs> there's more and more it's books much more pc name yeah there's more and more new books with like the really like titles that are just yeah there's like a dozen books with the f word yeah, in like the, the subtle right art, now like at target the subtle art yeah, not like, giving a f yeah that was like oh. the first one i think and now there's like a dozen of them i see it every time i go any bookstore. i thought they were yeah. joke books but i but they're actually real like published yeah actual edited, you know, legit books yeah. to sell a lot of copies. The subtle art was actually a fantastic See, book. Like I never would have thought so. I yeah. would have thought it was like a bachelor yeah. gift or something like that. What, That's funny. Subtle art? Uh, yeah, it's called the subtle, subtle art of not giving an F and then they like block out the F word. I like and, it. It'll uh, make a great yeah, compliment uh, to the book you just mentioned, James. You need yes. to get it. <laughs> we can we start a book club. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm still having trouble concentrating because I'm picturing Brandon in a wedding dress at his, at his wedding. All six foot five of them bearded up, like looking perfect. And I only had a goatee at the time. So it's okay. It's not, not, not quite. It was goatee Brandon, not beardy Brandon. <laughs> Poor Heather. That woman is an angel. All right. She is. Next question What is your favorite business book? My favorite business book that I read 
and I still, it, it was actually called the sales Bible. Mm. Um, and you know, as a young salesperson, like I, I really wanted to learn on how to handle objections because I was trying to negotiate a good deal. It all starts with a good deal. Right. And so that helped me organize all my, uh, how I did sales, my follow-up methods. Cause you know, following up is the biggest part of sales and it, it taught you how to do objections, follow-up method. And it just, I remember I read that book like five times in my first year because I was getting nowhere and it just kept kind of helping me through. That's a nugget. This follow-up is where it's at. People, they don't realize that they send one round of direct mail letters and they don't get a reply. And like, that didn't work. I had a new agent yeah. on my team that went door knocking the other day. And she's like, I've been door knocking twice in a row and I haven't found one person to sell their house. It's like, <laughs> what are the odds that the moment you knock on their door, they're going to have been, Oh, I actually, I do want to sell like it. You have to keep yep. doing it. That's the whole point is you get a relationship you build. And then eventually that starts to feed you. But I see so many people that start off on that journey of lead generation, looking for leads and they only hit somebody once. It's like you're looking for a tree that will yep. fall down with one swing of the ax. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, you have to keep chopping at eventually it'll go down. So that's very good. Yeah, I, I used to knock 30 doors a day, five days a week. That was my minimum. But how many, wow. I bet a lot of those deals did not come from the one door. They were consistently talking to the same people and, and letting them know you were there and saying, Hey, I want to buy your house. Right. Yeah. And then just, uh, yeah, you mark yep. the hot leads. You'd be like, Oh, this one's beat up. This one's neglected. And then those ones I would go back to weekly. You make it a funnel. And, That's exactly. Yeah. Right. And you bring them <laughs> gifts. You can bring them all sorts of like whatever thing they liked. I was going to bring them like whether it was a beer or cigarettes or food or whatever it was, I'd drop by. And I think we need to have you write a That's book, awesome. man. This is some really, really good stuff. <laughs> This is awesome. Yeah. How to buy real estate without being a beep. All right. <laughs> Next question. What are some of your hobbies? Uh, I'm a big, uh, so I, I like boating a lot. I can spend a lot of time out in the water. My kids are top priority for me. So anything kid related on the weekends, I, I love hanging out with my kids. And then I'm just kind of a fitness person in general. Like I'm a firm believer. If my body feels good, my mind works better. So anything active, like if it's wakeboarding or working out, like I said, I'm, I'm relocating California a little bit just to be out in the sun. I'm going to learn surfing, just anything active. That's awesome. And, and Seahawks football. I'm a huge Seahawks football fan. So are you going to change when you move down to, oh, down to California? No, okay. I'm flying okay. back for every game. <laughs> you really? Oh yeah. I usually go to about four or five away games too. I love, That's I love cool. football is my thing. Football and real estate. There you go. Yeah. That's cool. Poor guy. That was a rough day for him. All right. Number four. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? You know, I think the biggest thing you can have as an investor is uh, having integrity and doing what you say you're going to do. And that has gotten me so much deal flow over the years, like building that representation and then telling if I'm going to do something, I I tell it to them and I'm going to stick to that no matter what. And that reputation alone gets me so many people coming to me to bring me stuff because they know if I tell it to them, I'm I, you know, and I always give them logic with my answer, give them logic. And then I just, you know, and I've bought in properties that I told yes on that I ended up not really wanting to buy. And I did it just to keep the relationship going. But yeah, that those, you know, a lot of times people go for like these like specialty, like, Oh, you know, as a real estate investor, like get a niche, do these things, but core values will always make you stand apart. I agree. Sense. I I've love done that. the very same thing and it always comes back. Um, yep. And I think Josh Dorkin was actually a big proponent of that as well. Just you have to be a person of your word. And, and if you're not, you're not going to be in business long. That's definitely been the case. Yep. All right. Well, James, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I had no idea that you were this smart 
Cause you, you're like I said, <laughs> you're a very smart. humble guy. You don't come across like a know-it-all, but the more you talked, I'm like, oh my gosh, this dude's got it together. We got a really good guest here for people that want to find out more about you and learn to be you. Where can they find out more about you? Uh, well, my social media is, uh, so actually I will do, um, daily or not daily, but weekly videos of me visiting sites, looking at things. My Instagram handles, J Dane, uh, J D A I N flips, F L I P S or our uh, company website is www.heatondanard.com. H E A T O N D A I N A R D.com. And that kind of, um, go, and we do a bunch of, you know, just investor tool helping things there. So it's all, it's all free. And our, our goal is just always get back to the investment community and it pays back. So it's great. I love it. Love it. Super cool. And of course, we'll have links to all that at the show notes. You can check it out there. I'll have links to all those good things, including your social media and all that. So definitely follow James, check him out, check out the website. And uh, with that, I guess we'll uh, get out of here. David Green, you want to take us out? This has been fantastic. He is J. Dane Flips. Brandon is Beardy Brandon. I am David Green 24. Follow us on Instagram to keep up with our journeys. Thank you very much, James. This has been an awesome episode. And this is David Green for Brandon, the beautiful bride turner, signing <laughs> off. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.